Hello and welcome to the CEA podcast. A brief service announcement at the very beginning to introduce a few changes that we've made to the podcast over the summer break. Not only do we have a new jingle, new introduction music that you'll hear very shortly, I'm also very excited to introduce you to a new co-host of the podcast, Beth Oppenheim. Welcome, Beth. Tell us what you're doing here. Hello. So I'm a researcher here at the CER. I've been here for a year now and I've been doing lots of editing on the podcast and the occasional hosting. And I'm very happy to tell you that I will now be co-hosting with Sophia because she is now in Berlin. So I will be the London host of the podcast. I'm in Berlin because the CER has opened a new office there. Beth, I think it's going to be great. I'm not going to ask you to give people a fun fact about yourself. Instead, I'm going to interview you for this very first Back to School episode. Enjoy. Great. Here's the new jingle. From the Center for European Reform, this is the CER podcast. It is a critical moment. If we do not act with urgency, we would then severely undermine the liberal order. Brexit means Brexit, and we're going to make a success of it. The wind is back in Europe's sights. We have now a window of opportunity, but it will not stay open forever. Great. So welcome to our first Back to School podcast of the year. As I said in the intro, I have just moved to Berlin and I can already say that the one question that I'm being asked the most whenever the conversation turns to Brexit is, will there be a second referendum? Yes or no? And I don't have the answer to that question. And that's why this week when I'm in London, I have asked Agata Gostinska-Jakubowska, who is a senior research fellow at the CER, and Beth Oppenheim, who is a researcher here, to help me get an answer that I can bring back to Germany. <laughs> Let's start with one person who has a very strong opinion on this issue. Theresa May has said that another referendum, a second referendum on leaving the EU would be a gross betrayal of our democracy and trust. Does she have a point, Beth? Well, one thing I will say is that we all know the 2016 referendum attracted people who felt like they'd been forgotten by the political establishment. Turnout at elections among working class British citizens has been in decline. In the 2010 general election, there was actually a 23% gap between the wealthiest and the poorest British citizens. And indeed, the referendum was really constructed as a kind of people versus establishment campaign. And it drew back disillusioned voters. So 5.7 million people who hadn't voted in the 2017 general election turned out to vote uh, in the referendum. So in a sense, another referendum could lead to renewed feelings of disempowerment and it could create a backlash. And obviously there's a risk as well that if you put no deal on the ballot, that then becomes the protest vote. And that is something that we all know has very severe consequences and we wouldn't want to see happen. So I think if we saw a shift in polling, then maybe Remain, if Remain was breaking through to 60% and staying there, which is what was called settled will in Scotland in the 1990s, then there might be more of a case for a referendum. But I think anything else is a big, a big risk. Having said this, it looks like the public is actually slowly changing its mind about Brexit. The polls uh, commissioned by the Best for Britain a campaign organization which backs on other referendums suggests that over 100 constituencies are now actually shifting towards Remain. And it's very interesting to see that many of these are labor constituencies. So this also explains why there is a mounting pressure on labor leadership to make up its mind on another vote. Now, of course, you could say that 
the polling size or the polling sample was too small, or you could perhaps point to another problems with that particular public opinion poll. But it's also interesting to say that another poll, which was recently, very recently published by the What the UK Thinks, also suggests that there is around 6% uh, swing from leave to remain. Now, of course, the authors of this research are caution, saying that perhaps some of the people who said they would vote remain didn't actually vote in in the first referendum so they didn't vote in the first place but uh, nevertheless um, you know those those figures i would say in a way play into the hands of the best for britain or the people's vote uh, campaign who actually arch for the so-called, you know, red emergency uh, stop button and who say it's not too late to, to stop that mess. So you've mentioned polling and I think that these numbers are important and interesting, but this is polling that is happening in a country that has been traumatized by the polls pre-referendum, which were misleading uh, in many cases. You mentioned another point, though, which I think I want to talk about now, which is labor leadership. And yes, we have these campaigns that are supporting another referendum, but really, does it not take the opposition party to take a strong um, view on this issue and to support another referendum? Beth, politically, what are the chances of that happening and where does Labour stand now? It's a really good question and I think it's something a lot of Labour voters have been quite frustrated about. If Labour did choose to back another referendum, that could really be a game changer, but Labour would actually have to make that its official policy. And right now, Corbyn's official stance is that he opposes another referendum. I mean, Agat has already kind of raised these shifts in polling and there's been this narrative for the Labour Party that, you know, their Labour, a lot of their Labour heartlands voted leave. I think it was seven in 10 uh, Labour-held constituencies voted leave, but the polling that Agatha has pointed to affects the Labour heartlands as well. So there has been a shift in terms of Labour leave voters shifting towards Remain. So it's interesting about how far politicians are going to believe that polling and kind of be brave enough to risk losing their seats in order to change their stance. Also, we are seeing mounting pressure on Labour from trade unions and trade unions at what may well shift the picture. So this week, a big trade union, GMB, have demanded another referendum under any circumstances. And I think we're quite likely to see more. And obviously, at the end of the month, we've got the Labour Party conference and local Labour parties are organising a challenge to Corbyn's policy. They, They want a motion for a public vote on the deal. However, Momentum are planning not to consult their members until after the Labour Party conference. So can you just sorry can you just quickly say for a non UK yes. listeners what momentum is Momentum is the grassroots labor movement Corbyn supporters and so they've been very influential in terms of defining labor's policy on a lot of issues but on Brexit there's a shift going on inside momentum at the moment towards remain but if they're not going to consult their members until after conference that means Corbyn's likely to be able to wriggle out of anything during conference If labor should indeed decide to make up its mind and to support another referendum, would that even be possible? Agatha, I'm turning to you because you're (laughs) the in-house experts on what is possible constitutionally, you're a lawyer as well, and if you could just try to go technically through the steps that would be necessary to hold another referendum. Sure, but do you promise that you will bear with me (laughs) while I walk you through through this nitty-gritty? I'll bear with you if you keep it short. (laughs) Okay, we know that 
Labour will have a very difficult choice to make and that there is this pressure that Beth has talked about. This does not change anything about Tories' position. The Conservative Party position and Theresa May's one has been there is not going to be another referendum. This means that the government sticks to its plan and continues negotiating with Brussels the terms of the withdrawal agreement. The ambition of the government is to bring this deal in October perhaps or, or November. We can of course discuss whether that's feasible or not, but that's the ambition. And let's imagine that Theresa May is successful in finalizing the terms of the negotiations, she comes back home and she says, I have a deal for you to vote on. She then lays that deal together with a political declaration which would sketch out the future relationship between the EU and the UK, and the parliament will have to either approve or reject that agreement. Now, if the parliament rejects that agreement, Theresa May is obliged to come back again to parliament and set out her plans or her steps, what she intends to do next. Now, the government's trick has been that it would like to present its plans in the so-called neutral terms. So it would like to make an arrangement for a motion which would be saying the parliament has considered government's plans for the future. Now, this means that the government thinks that parliament will not be able to amend that motion. But it seems to me it will be up to speaker to decide. And the parliament could say, well, actually, we don't like the steps you propose. We want you to do something else instead. And one of the options would be the referendum. But the Labour Party, interestingly, up till very recently, said that in the case the withdrawal agreement was rejected, its preferred uh, option would be actually to send the government to renegotiate the terms. Now, we can also imagine another scenario that Theresa May comes to London and says, I've done my best, but... I haven't managed to strike an agreement. And we are heading to a no-deal scenario. She will also have to make again a statement in the British Parliament by January 2019. And again, she will have to inform the Parliament what she decides to do next. And now many people say that if the no-deal scenario was going to happen, the chances, the likelihood of holding another, another referendum would grow, mainly because there is no, at least it seems to me, there is no parliamentary majority for a no-deal scenario because of the implications. It seems to me that if the no-deal no plan was on the cards, there might be some MPs who would be inclined actually to say, we don't want to take this responsibility, we don't want Britain to leave without a deal, let's put that a question again to the British voters. But to, to sum up, basically a referendum scenario bases on the rejection of the withdrawal agreement or on the no-deal scenario. That does make a lot of sense, and I think you've explained that very clearly. I agree that the no-deal scenario particularly seems to lend itself to a narrative that is justifiable from a democracy perspective because people really did not vote for either staying in the EU or falling out of the EU without any deal at all. And then there's this risk of people actually voting for no deal, which is not what anyone wants. We, we then come back to the question what would have to be on the ballot paper if a decision was taken to hold another referendum. 
Could you just explain what you just meant, Beth, uh, people voting on no deal? Mm. It just in the sense of, as I was describing earlier, the last referendum became a kind of protest vote against the establishment and against elites. There's a lot of frustration among a lot of people who voted for Brexit who feel that this whole process is taking a very long time or that it's being frustrated by parliamentary procedure, etc. And so you can imagine a scenario where people were angry and just really thought, no, let's, this is it, I'm done, let's vote for no deal. So if Parliament does decide to reject the offer that Theresa May comes back with, or if there is no deal indeed, we do know that they are unlikely to make that decision any earlier than October, November, or perhaps even December. Does that leave us enough time to hold another referendum before the UK crashes out of the EU on March the 29th of next year? We are on a timeline after all. Yeah, there's a lot of debate going on about the time pressures. And as ever with the Brexit argument, it's really hard to know who to believe. So, I mean, earlier this month, Vince Cable of the Lib Dems was breezily saying that legislating for a referendum would take only a matter of weeks. But indeed, every aspect of the vote would actually need parliamentary scrutiny. And that, that goes for the options on the ballot paper, the wording, defining the franchise, can 16 or 17 year olds vote and so on. And all of that would be subject to really fierce parliamentary debate. And that means ping pong between the the Commons and the Lords and again more time and then there's various other hurdles that need to be cleared like the Electoral Commission needs to uh, assess the referendum question which takes 12 weeks then there's a campaigning period which needs to be 10 weeks at minimum uh, and there's been some really interesting research done by the UCL Constitution Unit which came out this week which found that even if legislation was introduced right after the party conference in October and every hurdle was met with minimum time the earliest Thursday that a referendum could be called is the 20 8th of March 2019. So then we come on to the issue of the extension of Article 50, which I'm sure Agatha has something to say about, but there's this whole issue about European Parliament elections, which are in May of 2019, and that is going to be a massive headache for the EU. So I don't know if it's possible that the UK would end up being there without any representation. Yeah, I'm sure Agatha does have something to say <laughs> on the extension of Article 50, um, because we're not just talking, I mean, yes, we have just been talking about the UK side of this issue, and in a way that is representative, I think, of the way that the debate is being held here in Britain, but they are negotiating with the EU. Do you think that there is any chance that the EU27 might be willing to extend the Brexit deadline if there was a real hope that voters would reject Brexit after all, that the situation would change so drastically. Yeah, I think you're right to say this British debate is very often conducted in isolation to what actually Brussels has to say or what the EU27 think about the entire process. Nevertheless, I think we need to distinguish two questions. Uh, first of all, what would be the EU's reaction to British decision to hold the referendum and then would the EU27 be willing to accommodate it in a way and extend the negotiations. So uh, when it comes to the first issue, I think that if the British decided to hold another referendum, the EU27 would try to avoid any political intervention as long as the UK is formally an EU member state, it has right 
to organize a public vote on any matter, including EU-related matters. So I suspect the EU27 would be very careful not to intervene in this. I can't also imagine the situation where the very next day, the British government of a day, because we don't know what kind of government that would be, announces a public vote. I can't imagine the situation that EU leaders say, oh, no, no, you can't hold another referendum since you already voted on this issue. Having said this, Brussels has also its constraints. And, and Beth has already mentioned the European Parliament's elections. Let's not forget that the UK is leaving the EU just ahead of the new EU business cycle. Yeah? So we will have elections to the European Parliament. We will have new European Commission. So it seems to me that the EU would be willing to have the so-called British issue issue sorted by the time European citizens goes to a vote. But that in practice means that the EU27 would perhaps be inclined to extend the Article 50 deadline, but not longer than for perhaps six weeks, which, as Beth has just explained, probably still is not enough to not only hold the vote, but also implement its outcome. Sorry, I don't understand. Didn't what Beth just say imply that would be possible because you could technically hold the vote on the 28th and if you then had another four to six weeks, you might be able to implement it? Well, I think that, that this is something that we've been discussing with Beth for uh, for quite a, a, a while, that, of course, this would open the whole Pandora box uh, with, you know, how do we implement the vote? Is the vote conclusive? You know, I can already see a discussion about whether there is enough majority voting for one or the other scenario. What do we do? Do we actually withdraw our Article 50 notification? What do we do in terms of of the legislation, I'm actually very skeptical <laughs> whether whether that's still enough to, to implement the outcome. And also, if you had something like Remain on the ballot paper, even that is open to interpretation. Mm -hmm. It's not quite clear what Remain would look like after we've been through all of this. Will the EU allow mm -hmm. us to remain on current terms or will it look like something different? So it's, it's still going to involve, you know, arguments about interpretation, mm -hmm. most likely. What are the suggestions at the moment for what to put on the ballot paper? So there's the Justine Greening model, which is remain, accept the terms of the New Deal and leave, I believe. This would be a preferential system, so the least popular option would drop out and the second preferences would be redistributed and then the overall winner would be decided. Or you could have a two-stage referendum where voters decide between leave and remain and then if leave were chosen, there would have to be a second round on either leaving on the terms of the deal or with no deal. But that essentially means that you have to conduct two rounds of referendums, which is not very practical. So that basically shows that even the academics themselves, you know, do not have a very unanimous uh, stance on what kind of questions should be put to the ballot and how the whole process should be organized. Mm, and it's also questionable if you can assume that voters have listened so very carefully and paid so much attention over the last two years that they could, for example, vote on the different models that are currently in debate with uh, the European Union. But this is actually, I think this is a very important point that you have just made. In 2016, the British were asked 
Do you want to remain in the European Union or do you want to leave it? They had no idea how the government of the day would implement the outcome of the vote. So they had no idea what kind of a future relationship the UK would have with the EU because, as you remember, Cameron's government did not present any papers which would be suggesting how to implement this vote. So this is at least one of many lessons that we can draw from 2016 referendum. So yeah, I wanted to to ask you about this and, and to sort of move on to really the, the added value that mm. you two can bring to this conversation, which is what are the lessons learned from the 2016 referendum? How can referenda be held in a way that is democratically justified, <laughs> in a way that all sides feel represented and that voters feel like they're making an informed decision to avoid exactly the debate that we're having now over whether there should be a second referendum over whether the decision that voters made is to be respected or not. Beth? So I think we all know that the 2016 referendum was a less than perfect example of a referendum of direct democracy. It was really kind of driven by divisions in the Conservative Party rather than really to facilitate mm. genuine democratic expression. So I think one way of avoiding this in the future is that governments should really be thinking about holding a kind of wide-ranging public consultation of citizens from a broad spectrum of demographics. So in the case of the UK, and this isn't just a UK Brexit issue, it's a broader mm. question about you know, EU or even wider than the EU, how to hold referenda in a more responsible way. And I think in the case of the UK, the government could consider holding a citizens' assembly in order to help the public understand the implications of their vote. And that citizens' assembly could actually help to draft the questions and the wording of the questions on the ballot paper. And the government should promise to publicly respond to the assembly's recommendations because there's been, in the past, with citizens' juries under New Labour, etc., there was a real issue about participants not feeling like they were being listened to or like there was really any consequences of their input. So I think that could be really powerful. Absolutely. But I think uh, what we've learned also during the 2016 referendum campaign is that sometimes the campaigns get away with spreading some misinformation or sometimes even myths about, in this case, about the EU. And it, it seems to me that there, there isn't any consent among the academics on how to sort out this problem. Some say that there should be an institution which would be holding campaigns accountable. And if the campaign organization is actually spreading myths about the issue which is being put on the ballot, then this campaign should be held uh, accountable. But it's not that everyone agrees on this, but I think we both with Beth have been having quite a lot of discussion recently about this. And I think such an institution mm. would be probably uh, useful. But it seems to me that now that we've talked about this referendum, you, Sophia, and perhaps our listeners might think, why the hell should we have the <laughs> referendum in the first place? Or basically, why should we put such important matters uh, to a public vote? I think there are some positive lessons, there are some positive conclusions, and I actually like ending on a positive note. <laughs> so uh, we've looked with Beth
have uh, the data which actually shows that both the 2014 actually referendum on Scotland's independence, but also 2016 referendum, they stimulated political engagement. They contributed actually to increased public participation. So we've noticed that there was an increased number of voter registration, uh, membership of political parties increased. I think we've also looked in the petitions uh, submitted to the British Parliament. It was interesting to see that the number of petitions concerning EU matters increased after uh, the referendum. So this is just to say that the referendum, a direct democracy instrument can give citizens a sense of public duty. Perhaps it can also encourage them to greater self-education. So that would be my sort of positive. (laughs) And that's the silver lining, isn't it, with if we were to have another referendum, you would hope that actually public knowledge and understanding would be higher given the amount of airtime it's been getting. I know there's debates about how good quality that information is, but there is an increased awareness that might mean that we might have a slightly better run referendum this time around. Right, okay. Well, thank you for for leaving us with such a balanced view. I'm certainly taking away from this conversation a pretty strong view on whether or not we should have another referendum, and I'm sure you both have views as well. I'm not going to ask you to give us those. I am I'm going to ask you, though, for an answer to the people in Berlin who ask me, will they or won't they hold another referendum in the UK? As a last answer, could the two of you just give me your sense? Maybe we should start from Beth, since she is British and she's definitely better positioned. I have to say, I think there are reasons to think that it might end up being in both Tory and Labour interest to throw this question back to the people. For the reason that we've talked about already, referendums in this country have a bad history of ending up being used to try to solve internal party disputes. Mm. So it may it may come to the, that point where there's just parliamentary deadlock, there's no majority for anything, and there's a need to try and get a mandate and throw it back to the people. However, I will say, given all of these technical aspects that we've just spoken about, and I think the extension of Article 50 is really crucial here and about how realistic that is. It seems like maybe not realistic, given all these complications with EU parliament elections, etc. There are serious technical impediments to that. So whilst there might be all the political will in the world when it comes to really clock ticking down Mm. time, there actually just might not be the practical space for that. So I'm going to put my analytical hat on and I will say, having considered all the, you know, political aspects of the entire debate and how how the public opinion is shifting, I think another referendum is still rather unlikely, but I wouldn't entirely exclude this possibility. I think it might have even grown recently, so I wouldn't cross it out, but I wouldn't be putting my money on that either. (laughs) This is really, we're getting to the meat of the issue. Would you put money on it? Yes or no? Right, there you have it. That's your answer, people. Thank you so much for listening and thank you so much to Beth and Agatha for talking about this with me. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to the CER podcast. If you have any feedback for us or want to leave suggestions for a future episode, then you can find us on Twitter at CER underscore EU.